take your Bible, if you will, and look with me. Let's open it up. Let's look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 18 for a second. I don't know how God can make it more clear than when He spoke these words to Ezekiel. This is probably the greatest summation of the wrath of God and the judgment of God in Ezekiel uh, chapter 18. If you pick up right there at verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. That's pretty much to the point, wouldn't you say? And then you look over at verse 20, same chapter, chapter 18 of Ezekiel. The soul who sins shall die, he says it again. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, and the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a, pers if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Now you and I understand because we live in, New, in the New Testament. Christ, the Son of God, came and lived perfectly what God just said here to the Old Testament Jews. He never committed sin. He lived according to the statutes of God. He was just and He was right. And because of that, He was able to go to the cross and die for our sins, who are the unjust, who are the unrighteous, and we take on the righteousness of God. So we have that. Amen? That's an absolute confidence that we have, that we are saved. In fact, the Holy Spirit becomes a guarantee for us that we are heaven-bound and that we will receive the fullness of our redemption in heaven with a glorified body. Praise God for that. He goes on, verse 22, none of, the right, none of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Well, we translate that for the righteousness that Christ has done, we shall live. Isn't that wonderful? And he goes on, he talks more about death, and he talks more about uh, anger and wrath, and he talks about judgment to come. He closes it out, for I have no pleasure, verse 20, uh, 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. The whole time in this chapter that he talks about judgment and wrath and fury that's being stored up against the unrighteous, yet at the end of it, he, the conclusion is, I have no pleasure in that. I, I, my desire is that you would turn and you would live, Amen. that you would receive Jesus Christ. And I say that to you tonight, I say that to those listening from live stream. You can grow up in the church, you can, you can uh, say your parents helped build the church that you grew up in, and you sang in the choir, and you've given money, and you helped build the church, you put the roof on the church, and you're just nothing but church from birth to death. Hey, you can bust hell wide open being a person who's been in the church. Being in the church doesn't save anybody. Amen. You have to surrender by grace through faith to the work of Jesus Christ. He is your Savior. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Then you'll be saved. Amen. There's no other way to it. And so tonight as we get into Revelation, we haven't even gotten into Revelation yet, um, as we get into Revelation, chapter 15 is very much a preparation for chapter 16. And I'm going to share with you, uh, maybe we'll even get into chapter 16, because chapter 15 is a short chapter, okay? Chapter 16, the bold judgments begin. If you recall, we've already looked at the, the, the uh, seal judgments. We've looked um, at the trumpet judgments of God. And the final seven judgments are the bowl judgments, B-O-W-L. And so we'll take a look at those tonight. Hopefully we'll get started at least. Maybe we can finish chapter 16 too, who knows. Okay, let's get started. Verse 1 in chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for them, with them the wrath of God is finished. So again, we've already covered the seals, which were the seven seals. The, those are the first judgments of God that came through the angels. And then we covered the trumpets. Those were the second set of seals or judgments that came. And now we're about to enter the final seven judgments, 21 judgments of God. And in, and, and in, and in 
And in the midst of all the judgments of God at the end, in the seven-year tribulation period, He continually offers grace. He offers salvation. That's why God is righteous. That's why He is just. He's never been unfair to anyone. And so in chapter 14, we saw the consummation of all things, ending with the fury of the battle of Armageddon. But here John goes back and describes uh, God's judgment in greater detail. This idea of stating and restating happens throughout the Bible. In Genesis, he did that. He gives us a picture of creation, and then he goes into detail how he created man and woman. So throughout the Bible, you'll look and you'll find where God states something, and then he restates it. Well, he does that here in Revelation. So John is about to enlarge the scene for us of what he has already given us a sketch of earlier in the book of Revelation. We need to be, remember that Revelation is not all recorded in a strict chronological order. Okay, There is an order to it. Uh, there is some chronology, but it's not all clean and clear cut. Okay, it's, and, and so we're going to see that tonight. So let's look if we, let's break down verse 1. Seven angels with seven plagues. Uh, that idea of seven plagues uh, also comes out of the book of Leviticus. If you want the verse, those of you who are Bible students who love to just study, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 21. Write that down, and you can look it up later. Uh, but basically, if you walk contrary to me, the Lord says in that passage, and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. Wow. Well, guess what? In the final judgments of God, he brings seven plagues, seven sins. These last seven plagues are God's judgment on a disobedient and defiant world. Now, look again, if you will, seven angels with seven plagues. And then he says, which are the last for which the, uh, them the wrath of God is finished. The ancient Greek word for wrath is thymos, T-H-Y-M-O-S. Thymos is how they, they, many would say it. Thymos, T-H-Y-M-O-S. There are two words for wrath that are used when referencing God's wrath, Okay. Uh, you have thyros, which is a volatile, passionate anger coming from God. And then the second word is orge, O-R-G-E. Okay, it's not ogre, orge. Put the R in front of the G. And that is a settled disposition, where the other is a fierce, passionate anger. Uh, orge is more of a controlled, settled anger that God has. Both are from God. Now what's interesting is the word thymos is used only 11 times in the New Testament and 10 of the 11 are in Revelation. So you can see throughout history, Old Testament, New Testament, God reveals His anger that's to come. The Bible even says in Revelations or in Romans 1, He is storing up anger. But now all of a sudden we get to Revelation, the final book where everything plays out in the end, and now all of a sudden God moves into a passionate, fierce fury over sin as He thinks about the judgment to come. There's a building of this, this anger that God has against sin and the sinner. Orge is more of a common word for God's anger in the New Testament. Okay, When He says, for with them the wrath of God is finished, what it says here in the verse, in verse 1, the wrath of God is finished. The word in the ancient Greek means to reach an end or to reach an aim. That God from the beginning, even before the first creation of the world, God already knew what the end would be. He already laid out the end. And in His sovereignty, He is playing everything out exactly, precisely as He has set it up. And this is going to be the end. The aim of God is about to happen in the end. When, it get, when you get down to Revelation, to the end of the world, God's behind the whole thing. It's all playing out according to Him. Amen. Verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. That's an interesting phraseology. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. 
standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Let's just think about this. Not everything in Revelation is absolutely clear to us. We have to almost postulate a little bit. We, we, we can guess, we can, we, can, uh, you know, we can say it's plausible, but I don't know that we can say clear, black and white, this is what this means. There are many things in Revelation that are like that. So I don't ever want to mislead you in things where the Scripture is not absolutely clear into trying to create something that looks clear when it's not. So uh, I, I want, let's just talk about this for a second. Um, one theologian said that this sea of glass is d designed to reflect the glory of God. Think about this, that, that in God's perfect carrying out of His wrath, that is an act of glory to Him. It, it's a way of bringing glory to God, that he, would, that he would bring His judgment against sin. And it's interesting here, in chapter 4 of Revelation, if we were, were to go back, the description of this is it's like crystal. Here it says it's like glass. Back in Revelation 4 it says it's like crystal, which speaks of the holiness of God. Here the sea mingled with fire speaks of divine judgment that precedes, that proceeds out from the holiness of God. So you've got this crystal back in chapter 4 that speaks of the holiness of God. And here the sea of glass is, is more focused on that divine wrath of God, the discipline of God that's coming. Um, interestingly, many of the images in this chapter are connected with the book of Exodus. You can actually see a parallel. Now, I can't tell you that I understand all of it. I don't. I, I, and as I've read different commentaries and different theologians, I didn't walk away with any confidence. I don't think that they really know either. Uh, a lot of them are, are making guesses, and that's okay. That's okay. When we get to heaven, these things will all be clearly understood, right? Amen? Amen. Think about all the questions you have for God, okay, in your mind. And when you first enter, the second you take your last breath, and you're con you consciously transfer from this life to the next, immediately, it all makes sense. Uh -huh. Wow! Woo! No, no hidden secrets any longer. We will be known as those who are God's children, and we will know Him just as He is. We'll understand Him in a way we never understood Christ. It is going to be an incredible experience. But anyway, uh, so interestingly, some believe this fire speaks of the color red, because it says fire, right? As an allusion to the Red Sea and the deliverance from bondage. And when we also see the plagues, Moses, of course, the, we have the tabernacle, the cloud of God's glory. All that's mentioned here in chapter 15. So there are a lot of parallels in chapter 15 to back in Exodus and the children of Israel, what they experienced both in the Exodus from Egypt, but also while they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And so if this is a direct parallel, then this chapter shows the ultimate Exodus. That's what this has to be, right? where God's people are set free from a sinful and persecuted world. Praise God for that. God's going to give us the final exodus. Hallelujah. I'm glad. I love the premillennial view, and that's what I lean to. I don't lean to it because of this point, but I'm glad for this point. I lean to the premillennial view because I believe it holds up well in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. But one of the blessings of the premillennial view is the church is raptured out of this place before the, before the tribulation period. Amen. Praise God for that. So now, what you say, but, but what if it's not? What if you're wrong? Well, praise God. Does that change anything for us? I'm going to live for Christ whether I'm here in the tribulation or whether I'm in heaven. I'm going to live for Christ. And I'll probably be martyred because of it. That's okay. That just means I get to go to heaven quicker. Amen. Amen. If you're a good Christian in the tribulation, you don't last very long in it. <laughs> so, so there's nothing wrong with that, folks. Okay? So uh, verse 2, And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. This is a reference to those who were victorious over the beast through their faithfulness even unto death. It's speaking of the, the, what we will call the tribulation martyrs, those who died who, who the church has been raptured, now the tribulation begins, and, and many will come to Christ. And those who come to Christ 
are going to face martyrdom. They're the tribulation martyrs. That's what it's referring to here. It's described, if you want more detail of that, go back to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 17. 7, 9 through 17. I love how the Bible interprets the Bible. I love how the Bible defends the Bible. The best defense for the Bible is not your ideas and your reasoning. It is to go back to the Word of God in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament and let it speak for itself. The Bible doesn't need to be propped up. The Bible stands on its own. It's the only book that's ever been written that uh, will stand forever. <laughs> so it's going to outlive this life in this world. Praise God. Uh, here, I, I love to say it this way. People come into a Bible study or whatever, and maybe it's a dialogue. It's kind of a, everybody shares a little bit. And in, undoubtedly, this is what happens at some point. They'll read a passage, and, and the leader, the facilitator will say, so what does that passage mean to you? And there's always going to be somebody in the room who thinks they really have it together, and they understand the Bible. Well, here's what it means to me. Well, Here's what it means to me. Here's what I think he's saying. This, this is what... And they go on and they postulate on what they think. Let me tell you something. Before that guy that postulates thinking he knows everything, before he was ever born, the Word of God stood firm and true and was absolutely accurate and speaks to the authority of God Himself. After that man who's postulated all his ideas and thoughts about it, of the scripture after he's long gone the word of god is still going to stand Amen. you cannot do better than the word of god Amen. so when you're in a bible study and somebody starts with that nonsense of what does it mean to you stop him and say hey you know i'm here my time's valuable can you just get to how what it means to god what is god saying in the text that's really what i'm after here i'm not really after your idea or even my own idea okay all right, so that's, that's important. That's why we need to be students of the Word. Because we live in a world where everybody's got an idea. There are people in this world who really think that they know Jesus. And they think they know who He is. They think He's a wonderful man. He was a great prophet. Oh man, we just need to carry the spirit of Jesus, the attitude of Jesus. Wrong! He is Lord and Savior, the second person of the Trinity, who created all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's not looking for us to treat Him like He's dead, and now we just try to live in the Spirit of Jesus. He's alive, and He lives in us. Amen. So we just got to be careful there. We can get locked, lost in that nonsense. So obviously they don't survive the tribulation, the, these tribulation martyrs. Uh, even the Antichrist kills them, okay? And, and, and he, but even though he kills them, they still have victory, it says in our text, over the beast. They conquered the beast. Now, wait a minute. How did they conquer the beast if they were killed, if they were martyred? How does that happen? Uh, they stood pure and true and faithful to death. Praise God. Look at our text again. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. They never gave in to the work of Satan. They remained true to God. And so when they get to heaven... They are victors in God. Praise God. Great celebration for them. It's speaking of the tribulation martyrs. Okay, now, verse 2, last part of the verse. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. What is that talking about? In the ancient Greek, the word for uh, on, O-N, is ippi. Ippi. That might be familiar to We talked about that because that's one of the works of the Holy Spirit, that He comes on us, He comes upon us. Jesus said, in the, right before He left the earth, before He ascended, Jesus told the disciples, but you need to remain here in Jerusalem. And, and if you will, then the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And on the day of Pentecost, He came upon them. That word ippy was used, okay? It means to come on or to come over and there are instances in the Scripture where it means to come beside. So many believe that in the architecture of heaven, the sea of glass is a physical representation of the Word of God, connecting to the idea of the tabernacle, uh, its labor, and the washing of water by the Word. It's found in Ephesians 5.26. So if that's true, if all that's true, if it really is 
The picture of heaven is a picture of what they had in the tabernacle. Uh, get this. We could say that these saints are standing on the word of God in heaven. This sea of glass. Wow. Praise God. Verse 2, and they have harps in their hands. The only people seen with harps before the 24 elders are seen with them in Revelation 5.8. These tribulation martyrs are given the blessing of worshiping God with song. These martyred saints will be using instruments to worship the Lord God. How wonderful. And, th and then verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. When you read that, you think it's talking about two different songs. It's not. It's talking about one song with two names. Sometimes it's called the song of Moses because that's what they sang in the Old Testament. And then it's called the song of the Lamb. And here's the song. This is what the, the, the persecuted martyrs will be singing in heaven. Great and amazing are your deeds. Now think about it. They were put to death. But they still, in the midst of the tribulation, saw the good deeds of the Lord. They saw the angels flying about, calling out that God is just in bringing judgment. Turn and repent of your sins. It says, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways. O God, O, o King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, you say, wait a minute. That can't possibly be true that all nations will come and worship God. Uh, <laughs> just look around the world right now. And knowing that in the end, there's going to be a final great battle. There's three battles that are going to take place. The battle of uh, uh, Megiddo, which is Armageddon. Uh, you're going to see the battle of Gog and Magog. And then the great final battle of the Lord that Jesus actually goes up against the enemy. So these are battles that are going to take place. Those who are killed go to hell. So you're thinking, wait a minute, how does it mean that all nations will come and worship you? Remember what the Bible says in Philippians? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those who are sent to hell in the lake of fire will realize and will see Him as Lord. You can either choose to believe He's Lord now, or you will choose to worship Him as Lord in hell. I don't know about you, that, that choice is pretty easy for me. Amen. Okay, so uh, also here, I want you to just notice, I think it's very important to mention this. He says, he speaks of God's works. He speaks of God's ways. This song speaks of God's worthiness. It speaks of God's worship. Um, also, I want you to notice that the song that they are singing, that the emphasis in the worship of God in heaven never brings attention to man. Look, if you will, at the text. Your, 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 you, you, your. They didn't even focus on their own costly, glorious victory of remaining faithful all the way to death. When they got to heaven, they only had one song in their heart. They only had one focus, and that was the true worship of God. That's the heart of worship. We should learn from that, that that's what worship looks like in heaven. Never in heaven is the focus on anything other than God. Amen. On earth, we should, because the kingdom of God is in us, we should worship that way here too. That's why I'm not a proponent of heavy-duty contextualization in a worship service. You know, it, uh, I'm using, I don't have a podium here, but I put my Bible and I have my notes out. You do know that that is not popular today with pastors. I would be termed an old fogey to the pastors today. The cool thing is to just get up and start talking and not have to look at any notes, not have to open your Bible. It might be cool, but it's not healthy. You're leading people to focus on how wonderful you are as a communicator. See, it is not about the communicator. And if the communicator is constantly looking at the Scripture and calling out the Scripture and looking at his notes, 
then he's telling you that what's in here is much more important than anything else. Anything that takes away from God and His Word on this earth, it, it leads people astray in worship. Worship is to be about God. You can have the lights and you can have the smoke, you know, the little smoke machine that puts a little bit of a haze over the platform. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just telling you, that is not... That has, listen to me, that has nothing to do with the heart of worship. That is the work of man. Now, I'm going to be careful in what I'm saying because we do worship in a room that has air conditioning to make us comfortable. We do worship with carpet on the floor and we have nice cloth tablecloths that we, on these tables that we're using. You're sitting in a cush, on a cushioned chair. So I'm not throwing all contextualization out the window. I'm saying we want to be in a setting where nothing distracts us from God. In the, in the act of worship in any church, nothing should take us away from God. I, I remember back in the 80, or 90, 80s, 90s, uh, some church in California, this was their entry. This was how they started their service. They, remember Johnny Carson, the Johnny Carson? Here's Johnny! Literally, the guy's name was Johnny something. And that's how they started their service when he would come out. Here's Johnny! And he'd come out and doing a little dance and the music playing in church. Or we can go to the other side of this. And in the worship of God... Make it about man and man's accomplishments. We have to be so careful. In our service, what we try to do is when we are in worship, singing, we keep it to, to the word in the songs and to the doctrines. And we focus on that and that alone. When we come to the word, we start with the reading of, of scripture. And then we go into the preaching of the word. Now, we'll take a little time in the middle in order to talk about upcoming events, exciting news about baptism or whatever, that's fine. But we don't want that stuff to come into the worship of God. Does that make sense? We want to respect the worship of God. Now, are we perfect in it? We are not. So I'm not putting us ahead of anybody else that way. But that's the goal. That, and that ought to be a goal of your and your worship. That ought to be the goal. If you find yourself saying, well, I can only worship when I, when I have this kind of music. You just made worship about the music. I, I can only worship when I hear that particular guy preach. Man, I, nobody else, but boy, he really moves me. You just made it about the man. See the dangers and how easy it is, how subtle Satan is to luring us into things that are not true worship? We've got to be careful there. He then says in, in, in verse 6, uh, the latter part of the verse, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. So their clothing is a reminder that God's judgment is always completely pure and righteous, being described as pure, bright, and golden. So here's the point. These are not vigilante uh, saints who sink down to the level of criminal behavior in order to fight justice, okay? These are righteous and pure purveyors of judgment. When the angels come out from the Lord to bring the judgment of God, they are what they're doing is absolutely righteous. It's right. In verse 7, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled. Did you know there's a sanctuary in heaven? Did you know that there's a temple in heaven? And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God. It doesn't say, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the smoke machine. <laughs> and from His power, smoke was there because of His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. 
This is now getting very sobering as we read it. I want you to notice the detail. First of all, seven golden bowls. These bowls are broad. They're flat. These are flat bowls. They're like saucers. They're not like a deep bowl that you would have that, that bowl uh, like a, of rice and noodles or whatever. It's a very flat bowl. It's used ritually in the Old Testament tabernacle. Uh, it's used for, um, the, as, for the censers. It's used for the incense. It's a very shallow bowl. That's what he's referring to here. In fact, the KJV calls it a vile it's, that's a very poor translation into the English. It does not mean any kind of a deeper bowl or a vial. It's speaking of a shallow bowl. The reason they were shallow bowls was so that the contents could quickly and easily and completely be poured out. That is what these seven final judgments of God are going to be like on the earth. They're going to happen quickly and they're going to be complete. Everything is going to come out of that bowl suddenly on the earth. Okay? Uh, verse 8, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from the His power. When the cloud of glory fills the temple in heaven, no one can enter the temple. That is how awesome your God is. I have my whole life, I detest the title given to many clergy, the title of reverend. Because reverend comes from the word revere, Revere, the root of that is awe. No one should look with awe to a man of God because he is nothing but a man. The only one who should be revered and held in awe is God Himself. I'm not saying we should show disrespect to pastors and that we should uh, not give them a... The Bible says that, a, that those who teach the Word are worthy of double honor. So I'm not trying to reduce a pastor down to nothing, but I'm saying don't ever confuse a man of God from God. Amen. <laughs> They're totally different. And in heaven you'll know it. You will know it. Okay? Uh, he goes on, he says, uh, verse 8 again, and, and the sacred was filled with smoke for the, from the glory of God and from His power. When the cloud of glory fills the temple in heaven, no one can enter. It was the same when Moses, remember back when Moses would enter the tabernacle? And, and, and literally, God would be in that presence of Moses in the tabernacle. But not even Moses could experience the fullness of God. He saw the hind quarter of God. And he came out of that mount, off that mountain glowing because he saw the backside of God. No one can see God and live. Now in heaven, we will experience Him as He is fully known, which is awesome. Um, Exodus 40, 34 through 35, what they saw in the temple as this, what Moses had that glow or when they saw the, the cloud come over the temple, that was the Shekinah glory of God. That's what it represented. That's what it was, actually. Now, both the bowls and the cloud came from the glory of God and from His power is what Revelation is telling us. This is a reminder of God's special presence and glory even in the midst of a devastating judgment. God never lowers Himself from being perfectly almighty even when He carries out judgment. See, a lot of us, we think of people, somebody does something wrong and what, what are we like? Man, I wish I could get a hold of that guy for what he did to that child. Oh, I'd like to get my hands on him. See, what you want is you're a vigilante. You're going to use criminal behavior to take care of a criminal. That's not what this is. This is a holy, righteous God carrying out His righteousness through divine discipline. And verse 8, again, And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So what we learn here is that judgment is now irreversible. Once they leave and go out to bring the seven bowls of judgment, nobody will be able to enter until the judgment is complete. And it's irreversible. When they leave, they ain't coming back with bowls. It'll be empty bowls. They're going to carry out the judgment of God. 
And now we go to chapter 16. Let's, let's continue on tonight in our study. Let me just take our time. Well, we got plenty of time. Great. And so chapter 16, as we now look more closely at these bowl judgments, we begin to see the bowls directed against these natural, it starts out, they're directed against natural, uh, natural or nature. So these are natural phenomena taking place on the earth during the tribulation. Okay, here it is. Verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So since no one could enter the temple, this loud voice from the temple, that had to be God Himself, right? Who personally initiates the horrific judgment of the bowls. God does not shy away from what He's got to bring to man. He's not afraid to mete out justice, and He's about to do it, and He's the one that speaks it. Take the bowls and go deal with, with justice. And so they do. Verse 1, again, go and pour out the earth on the earth, the seven bowls of the wrath of God. These bowls of judgment are the third woe described in Revelation eleven fourteen, because they are described as the wrath of God. They are chastisements, okay, with the purpose of bringing repentance all the way through while these seven bowls are being poured out, there is opportunity for repentance. But they're also, they're not just that, they're also the punishments of God, the purpose of carrying out God's justice on the earth. For those who repent, they will be received to, before God. Those who do not repent, it becomes punishment. So you have a choice. These bowls will serve one of two things for you in the end. Those who live on the earth, it will, they will be seen as a chastisement of God. He's giving me an opportunity to, to turn and repent of my sin. But, but to those who don't return, it is your final judgment of God on your life. Okay? Uh, in terms of a time frame, these bowls are being poured out at the end of the seven-year period, which is immediately before Jesus returns. So again, we see images from Israel's exodus in the bowl judgments. In the day of Moses, God sent plagues upon Egypt that included plagues of boils and water turning to blood and darkness. All of that stuff we'll see here in, in the seven bowls. Interesting. The question has to be asked, are the plagues described in this chapter, are they symbolic? Well, we don't know. But what we do know is that God's judgment of this world will not be a symbolic judgment. It is a real judgment that's coming. Okay? We should also be reminded that the reality behind a symbol is always more real and more terrifying than the symbol itself. That goes throughout all Scripture. So again, go and pour out on the earth. He says it right there. Those who believe that the book of Revelation is all fulfilled in history, they're going to have a hard time with that because it says here that God's going to pour out these bowls on the earth. You'll see it on the earth. If earth doesn't mean earth, then what is God doing? Why, did, why does He have it in there? He ought, to, he ought to not have it in there. It means the earth, okay? And so this is something that's going to come in the end. Now we come to the first bowl, verse 2. Here it is. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores come upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So when you took the mark of the beast, uh, you actually have turned against God. You have said that I do not want to follow God. I, do, I resist. I rebel against God. You take, listen, nobody stumbles into taking the mark of the beast. Nobody. You take it because your heart is bent against God. And those who take the mark, these folks are going to experience painful sores. And so all we can come to is what we think of are boils. Is there really anything on your skin and in your flesh that's more painful than to touch a boil? Could you imagine having boils cover your body? Where to sit down, pain. To lie down, pain. No, no way to get relief. And then verse 3, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Now this is interesting. The sea doesn't necessarily become blood. It becomes like the blood of a corpse. It will match the appearance and the sickening character of the blood inside a dead body. That's what the sea is going to be like. Revelation 8, 8 and 9, we saw a glimpse. A, it was a small 
portion of what we see here, it, where it, it described a partial contamination of the sea. One-fourth of the sea would be contaminated. Now it says in the final judgment, all the sea will be contaminated. Think about people who worship the ocean and everything in it. They, they worship the ocean. They just think that, you know, it's the most incredible resource on the earth and we shouldn't be fishing in it. We shouldn't do anything. Just, just respect the ocean. Can you imagine how frustrated those people are going to be when a quarter of the sea is contaminated by God? What is God doing? He's saying, uh, I'm trying to get your attention. You're worshiping the wrong thing. And if you worship the wrong thing, then I'll just I'll show you it has no power to save you, to help you, to deliver you. I'm going to make a fourth of it contaminated. Now he comes and says, I'm going to take out all the sea. Why? Because now we're at the end. You're going to see it here next. Look at verse 3 or verse 4. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. So all the water sources, all the fresh water sources on the earth. And they became blood. All the fresh water sources. Again, here we have a complete contamination, unlike the partial. Back in Revelation chapter 8, verse 10, it talked about one-third of the fresh waters and the springs that would be contaminated. Now, all of them. Now, what we can ascertain from the freshwater sources becoming contaminated is that the time must be very short until the return of Jesus. Why? Because if all the fresh water is contaminated, how long can man live on the earth after that? So when, when, it, when that bowl, that third bowl shows up, you know that it's not going to be much longer that man will be on the earth. Man has to know that. Think about living in that time when you learn from the news, you know, CNN, Fox News, all of them, they're telling you there's not a single drop of clean, pure water left on the earth. It's all been contaminated. Therefore, start saving every bottled water, every gallon jug of water that you have. Can you imagine people fighting to get other people's water? Can you imagine the horrendous, terrifying situation that's going to hit the earth? And everybody will know our days are now numbered. In Clark's commentary, he said, They thirsted after blood and massacred the saints of God, and now they have got blood to drink. Wow. That is an ecological disaster that no man can survive. Verse 5, and I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just as you are, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. All through these seven judgments, these bold judgments, the angels are declaring, the altar in heaven declares that God is just in His judgment. And even with all the water sources on the earth contaminated, God's not doing an evil thing. He's just in doing it because He gave you fair warning and you resisted Him. And now you're receiving the discipline of the Lord in a final judgment. Completely fitting that those who delighted in shedding the blood of the saints should now be forced to drink blood. They refused the living water. Remember what God said in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. They've looked for their own water sources. And then God goes ahead and lets them in on it. And your water sources that you're seeking are broken. But you'd rather have a broken system than to have the spring of living water. And God says, finally, in the end, in the final judgment, here's what you wanted. Sometimes the judgment of God on the earth is cataclysmic. Other times the judgment of the earth is God handing over to sinners what they want. That's Romans chapter 1. 
They had a depraved mind, so God gave them the outcome of a depraved mind. Sexual immorality. Unnatural sexual immorality. Here in the final judgment of God, he pours out blood and says, this is what you said you wanted. You wanted to drink your own source. Here it is. They never gave God credit for creating the sea, creating the springs of water, creating the lakes, creating the rivers. So God says, now let me go ahead and play out your unbelief. Here's what you believed in. You missed it. That's got to be so infuriating for a sinner to worship the earth, to worship the, the water sources, to covet that, you know. You've probably run into these people who, you know, you're walking out of a Publix and you've got a gallon of water. What, what are you going to use that for? Make sure you conserve that. Like, like just taking a drink to them is almost like a sin. Do you really need that drink today? How much water do you use in your shower? And they worship it, man. They, they see it as more important than God himself. And God's like, okay, you ever tried to drink blood? Since you're worshiping the things I created, I also created blood. Go ahead and try some of that. And by the way, this is what you concocted with your sin. You celebrated the, the, the shed blood of my martyrs. So now, why don't you drink it? Mm. Remember when in Revelation it said earlier that the martyrs would end up in heaven, those who were persecuted to death, and they're under the altar and they're crying out to God, when will we be vindicated? This is the vindication. This is it. Verse 5, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters, just as you are, O holy one, who is, uh, who is and was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And verse 7, look at this. And I heard the altar saying, Who is speaking from the altar there? Who is it? It's either an angel, or it could be God, or the altar represents the corporate testimony of the saints. It could be an altar personified. God could do anything He wants. I mean, God did have a donkey speak in the Old Testament, right? Can you imagine that donkey talking and you looking at a donkey and he starts talking to you? In human tongue? Oh, my goodness. So we don't really know. We can, all we do is con we can conjecture about this, but uh, it's Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, where the testimony of the martyrs crying from the, from the altar. And Revelation 8, 3 through 5 also is another place. So verse 8, let's continue on. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. So now we're down to the fourth angel. Notice there were fir the, the, the first three bowls of judgment were pulled, poured out, and then the angel announced that God's just in what he's doing. Now they go to the fourth bowl of judgment. And he pours out on the, look at this, on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. So I want you to just think about all the sun worshipers on the earth. People who just, man, they live for the sun. They got these golden tan bodies, and man, they just love the sun. They, they think that's wonderful, you know, nothing like the worship of the sun, looking beautiful that I am, you know, like I'm a Greek god with my brown body. Hey, how many of you like getting a, getting a little bit of sun? Okay, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Getting a little tan, there's nothing wrong with that. But these folks live for it. You ever seen some of these folks walking around in Florida who they've been in the sun their whole life, and now they're like 70 years old, and their skin is all wrinkled up. It's, they're still tanned. I mean, they got this beautiful tan, but it's nothing but wrinkled skin. They're sun worshipers. <laughs> they, they live for it, man. There's nothing like the sun. What are they going to be like when God makes the sun scorch their bodies? I'll tell you what they're going to be like. The Bible tells you. They're going to curse God. I would think that you would want to repent. Well, I was wrong for worshiping the sun. God's trying to get my attention. No, they curse God because they love the sun. Not the S-O-N, the S-U-N, right? And notice again, look, verse 9. They did not repent and give Him glory. Think about it. The failure of men to respond with repentance shows that not even the knowledge or experience of God's judgment 
will change their sinful condition. Those who are not one to Christ by God's grace alone will never be one. I want you to hear this, please. Some, of, some are of the mind that men would repent if only they knew the power and righteous judgment of God to come. Now we're seeing people in that day who are seeing and experiencing the righteous judgment of God. They're not repenting. May I say this to you? No one repents because you put the judgment of God on them. The only way a person can repent is if God gives them the grace and the faith to repent. The Bible says that God's given a measure of faith to every man. And only through grace can a person repent of sin. Honestly. So them seeing the power of God move in this way is not the answer. Remember what uh, Abraham, when Jesus described the story in Luke 15, where Lazarus dies, he's, he's in the bosom of Abraham, and there's a chasm that separates him from the rich man that he, he used to eat the scraps under the rich man's table with the dogs. Now they both died. The rich man's over on the other side, and he's in torment. And he says, please send back Lazarus to warn my brothers of his terrible. He said, hey, if they wouldn't listen to the prophets, what did the prophets preach? Doom, gloom, judgment to come, woes, oracles of woe. If they wouldn't listen to the prophets, they're not going to listen to Lazarus. People don't get saved because they hear of the doom and gloom of the Lord. They get saved because God's grace opens up to them. And they see this just holy God who offers His grace to them. And they receive His grace to be saved. No other way to salvation. Now I want you to look at the bulls directed against the beast and his government. The, ninth, or the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. Why? They cursed God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So the ninth plague on Egypt was this literal darkness that fell over Egypt with spiritual overtones, okay? That's Exodus chapter 10, verse 21 through 22. Here in Revelation, people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. The darkness of the fifth bowl is a preview of hell itself. So the beast, so the enemy, and those who worship the beast, this is described by, by uh, God as Jesus even said it was an outer darkness. In the judgment, those who are being judged are now standing on the shores. This darkness represents the shores of the lake of fire. They're not in the lake of fire yet, but now everything goes dark. They did not repent of their deeds. In man's sinful condition, again, he increases his sin when under God's judgment. The very time he should forsake his sin. Spurgeon, see, I love this. He said, real repentance is when the man gives glory to the justice of God even though it condemns him. O oh, my hearer, do you thus repent? Is sin really sinful to you? Do you see its debt desert of hell? If not, your repentance needs to be repented of. Now let's move to verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who, do, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the, I love this, of God the Almighty. That right there tells you who wins the battle. The great day of God Almighty. The battle. God's going to win that battle big time. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. The Romans considered the Euphrates River to be a secure barrier from all intrusion from the, from the east. So China, Japan, our, the countries we know today, India, 
they would not be able to cross the river Euphrates back in that day, those people that lived there. In that day, it was 1,800 miles long, the Euphrates River, and it was 300 yards to 1,200 yards wide. So no, no kingdom is going to come up against uh, Rome from the east, okay? That was their barrier. And look at verse 12, it says, And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So God is going to set up the battlefield, and He's going to set up all the, all the armies of the earth coming together on the battlefield. So He dries up the river Euphrates. He dries it up so that it becomes a road. Okay, now you can get to the battlefield, and you can be part of the battle. They're thinking, woo, we're going to conquer, now the river's gone. We can get... And we don't know what they're going to conquer. We don't know if they're going in to conquer Israel. We don't know if they're going after the Antichrist, who's caused now he's revealed himself. Maybe they're going up against him. But what they don't know, it doesn't really matter what they think they're going up against. They are going up against God because they have resisted God. Uh, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and me uh, and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. So... Uh, the ancient Jewish people regarded frogs as unclean and repulsive, but the Egyptians, they actually worshipped a frog goddess. That's pretty gross to think about, really. Uh, one theologian said, the frogs are a devastating caricature of the failure of evil. That which men fear most because it appears to be mighty and eternally entrenched becomes at long last only a ridiculous spawning of sickly creatures of the earth and of the night. I love that. For they are demonic spirits. So these frogs are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the, the Almighty. So this battle is not, not going to be a battle of nation against nation. It's going to be a battle of nations against God. Psalm 2.2 speaks of that, by the way, if you want to uh, reference that, Psalm 2.2. Now, this is one of three important battles in the end, okay? Again, I shared it earlier, let me say it again. There's the battle of Gog and Magog and of her allies, and they will come against Israel. That's, that's uh, uh, found in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Then there's the battle of Armageddon, and that's when the Antichrist leads the world system against a returning Jesus. That's found in Revelation 17, 12 through 16. We'll be studying that. And then the final battle, when Satan and his allies, after the millennium, they're going to make war against God in Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10. So you've got three, three battles that are spoken of here, Gog, Magog, and her allies against Israel, battle of Armageddon, that's when the Antichrist leads the world system against a returning Jesus, and then the final battle, when Satan and his allies, after the millennium, make war against God and, of course, are thrown into the, to the lake of fire. The final, the final destiny of Satan. So, the battle of Armageddon is described in our text as the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So it's the battle of God's victory. You might as well just know it. That's what God's saying here. It's evident now. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. He's not speaking literally here. He's speaking garments here refers to spiritual and practical righteousness. That in the end, those who come to know Christ will carry the righteousness of God. That's their garment. They will not be seen as naked. They will not be seen acting in weak, wicked, evil ways. They're going to remain faithful to God. We too, don't think for a second that we shouldn't be walking on the earth today with garments of righteousness. That we should live in such a way that the holiness of God is exposed to the world that He is a holy God. And not that we're perfect, but that God is perfect and that we are, are bent towards Him. Okay, uh, Galatians 3.27, uh, it speaks of the righteousness of Jesus as a garment. And then also it's called to put, Jesus calls us to put on uh, the nature of holiness. Uh, and Paul spoke of it in Ephesians 4.20 of putting on the nature of holiness. All of this is in the Scripture. And when, they, when you're naked, what? It says in Isaiah that your, uh, your, your righteousness is filthy rags in His sight. Mm -hmm. So this great battle happens at a place called Armageddon or Megiddo. That's a, that's a literal place on the earth. 
and Megiddo is in a region frequently associated with decisive battles. That's where Deborah, in the book of Judges, she and Sisera, the, the captain of the army, they defeated the enemy. It's also the place where Gideon uh, overcame the Midianites, was on the, battle of, uh, on the field of Megiddo. Pharaoh conquered Josiah there, okay? Uh, Second Chronicles. It also refers to a place of end times mourning in Zechariah 12, 11. speaks of Megiddo as a place of end time mourning. If you saw a picture of Megiddo, I wish I had a screen I could show you. It is a vast field. You can't even see the other side of it. Uh, down through the ages, many, many battles have been fought there. In fact, over 200 battles through history have been fought on the battlefield of Megiddo. And interestingly enough, Napoleon Bonaparte said it is the, uh, what was it, um, the most natural battlefield on the earth. Now, Napoleon fought a lot of battles in a lot of places, and he said, without a doubt, the Megiddo is the most natural battlefield on the whole earth that he's ever seen. So this is where the final, this is where the, uh, the Armageddon will take place on this battlefield. And if you saw it, it's so vast, you could see every army joining together their fighting. It's, and, and, and it's going to be a display of God's mighty power on the earth. Verse 17, the, seven, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Could you imagine that? An earthquake unlike any earthquake that's ever hit the earth, ever, including uh, the earthquakes that happened that erupted during the flood, the great flood. We know there were earthquakes because the Bible speaks of it and how the waters from the deep below the, 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 the ocean floor it opened up and these springs of water gushed, gushed up. They created mountains and everything else on the earth. This earthquake is going to be greater than that on the earth. He goes further. He says, uh, verse 19, the great city was split into three parts. What city? Babylon. And the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Could you imagine a chunk of ice weighing 100 pounds hitting the earth? And it's not going to be a chunk. It's going to be 100-pound hailstones hit, or hail rocks hitting the earth. Holy mackerel. You know what? A you take one this size and the damage it can do to a car. A hundred, a hundred pound piece of ice falling out of the sky, it flattens the car. And rightfully so. God is bringing an end to everything. And then he says this, it is done. This announcement coming from the throne itself tells us that there will be no more delay, no more mercy. God has stretched out this scene as far as He can take, take it. The seals were followed by trumpets, the trumpets were followed by bowls, but there will be no more judgments upon the earth after this. Why? Because it's finally done. The, the purposes of God have been completely carried out to fulfillment on the earth. His plans. The, the plans, look... Many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord's plan prevails. Verse 18, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. That's going to be incredible. The city's going to be split into three parts because of an earthquake. By the way, hail is frequently a tool of judgment against God's enemies. He used it against the Egyptians. He used it against the Canaanites. He used it against His own people, the apostate Israel. He used it, he's going to use it against Gog and Magog in that battle. In all of these instances, hail rained down from heaven as a tool of judgment, not as a corrective chastisement of God's own children, a punishment of destiny, of death and hell. Man, Spurgeon said this, I, I had to put this quote in, Despite all their suffering, many will still not repent. I have known people say, well, if I were afflicted, I might be converted. 
If I lay sick, I might be saved. Oh, do not think so. Oh, oh, do not think so. Sickness and sorrow of themselves are no help to salvation. Pain and poverty are not evangelists. Disease and despair are not apostles. Look at the lost in hell. Suffering has affected no one in hell. He that was filthy there is filthy or filthy here will be filthy there. He that was unjust in this life is unjust in the life to come. There is nothing in pain and suffering that by the, their own natural operation will tend to putrefaction. Revelation 16 is a great chapter. It, it speaks of the great evil. It speaks of the great city. It speaks of this great Babylon. It also describes great tools of judgment, great heat, great river, great earthquake, great hail, great plagues. But most importantly, it describes a great God. And in the end, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess and know who God is. Praise God. We're going to experience the great victory from heaven as this is happening. And those who turn to Christ on the earth are going to experience the great victory of God when they come to heaven. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this group of saints who come to study your word. Thank you for your word, Lord. There is nothing like the word of God to comfort us, to encourage us, to give us insight and understanding, to help us navigate through this life. And Lord, right now in this world, we are experiencing much uncertainty, but boy, we are certain about your plans for this earth. And that causes us to be thankful that we have come into the grace of God and it compels us to be evangelist, to share with others the grace of God through the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.